0: There was a fundamental lack of understanding as to basic concepts and principles. A lot of people didn't understand the difference between carbon neutral and net zero carbon. An interesting one is is in the
1: industrial sector. The landlord has very little responsibility over the emissions for that whole asset class, but the occupier, they're responsible for 90, 95, almost 100% of the emissions there.
0: A lot of businesses don't realise if you have employees working from home, when you factor in people in we built, Australian homes that are very leaky, running the air conditioners, running the gas hot water, gas heating, all that kind of thing, it very quickly starts to add up.
2: Welcome to JLL's Perspectives podcast. In No Sound Bites There, we just heard from Connor McCauley and Anthony Clark, two of my colleagues at JLL who last year hosted a real estate sustainability road show. I asked them to join me in this episode to distill the conversations they had with their audiences into five of the most frequently asked questions. I'm Rebecca Kent, host of this podcast. I hope there's something here for you to take away.
1: My name's Connor McCauley. I'm the head of sustainability for JLL Australia. My responsibility is to look after our corporate sustainability targets and making sure our people understand what we're doing in that space, and others is helping our clients uh, to achieve their sustainability ambitions. I was fortunate enough to, to grow up by the beach, and you know from a very young age, I've always had a deep connection with nature, and um, I was working in the mining sector of all places, and it was just a huge eye-opener for me, and I realised that I really wanted to work on the environment and, and also the social side, and understand you know how I can focus my career and efforts on improving those things?
0: I'm the complete opposite. I grew up on a farm. Well, kind of grew up sort of half on what you'd call a hybrid um, farm city boy. Or my friends like to call me a concrete cowboy. Um, <coughs> but I, no, I'd, I'd have a, uh, for want of a better phrase, a side hustle in the agricultural space. So I have a farm out in the central west and basically I come from um, generations of, of farmers and I just thought maybe there's an opportunity to do something different in that sector. So I'm looking at, you know, how I sequester carbon in soils and trees and all that kind of thing. My name's Anthony Clark. I'm a senior director in the tenant representation business at JLL. Uh, And my job is to advise and represent clients or uh, occupiers of commercial office space to manage their ongoing real estate needs.
2: So I mentioned in my intro that we're going to discuss the most common questions that came up in your sustainability roadshow. And that was held at the end of last year and attended by a hundred or so different organizations, some with just 300 square meter offices, while there were also larger telecoms firms and, and banks represented with thousands of square meters spread across the country. But what we're going to discuss affects them all. So, Kicking off with question number one, what is the difference between carbon neutral and net zero carbon? Because the two are often used interchangeably, aren't they? Which is incorrect.
0: So one of the things that prompted the sessions that we had with um, our clients across the country was that um, there was a fundamental lack of understanding as to basic concepts and principles. So a lot of us were learning to walk before we could crawl, um, a lot of these conversations we had with our clients, a lot of people didn't understand the difference between carbon neutral and net zero carbon. So, um, carbon neutral is basically a process of a business measuring its scope one, two, and material scope three emissions, and then offsetting. Um, so, it's, it's it's still a good thing. So, we're not saying that you know carbon neutral's um, you know poor cousin to net zero. It, it can be part of a net zero plan. Um, net zero is more about prioritising true reductions, so instead of just going and offsetting um, you're changing your business practices and behaviours, so procuring renewable energy if you've got a fleet moving towards electric vehicles or that kind of thing and it's um, reducing your emissions across the entirety of the value chain, so it's scope one, scope two and all of your scope three. Um, And only using offsets as an absolute last resort for the residual 5 to 10% of the hard to um, remove emissions across the value chain.
1: And I think just to add to that, there's another one that that some investors and, and other big corporates are looking at globally is around being climate positive. So that's when they're actually going further than that and they're purchasing more offsets. So they're having a positive impact on the environment.
2: Oh, I see. So you're purchasing more offsets than carbon than you're actually emitting. Exactly right, yeah.
1: So, so through that, that, that net zero approach, you're reducing your emissions as far as possible. You're offsetting that remainder of emissions and then you're going further and taking in more carbon.
2: Wow, so presumably that's a pretty far off goal for a lot of organisations though.
1: Yeah, so it isn't common, but, but there are some, some organisations that are already looking at that. I think Microsoft is a really good example where yeah. they've, um, they've actually gone back to the, the year that they started business and purchased offsets for looking at their, their operations back in history. So not only from a point of view now and going forward where they're going to be climate positive or carbon positive, but back to when the initial company was founded
2: carbon goals right there
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely right. Yep.
2: excellent okay so that's question one now let's move on to number two what emissions are factored into my company's carbon footprint and how are my emissions affected by hybrid working so i imagine hybrid working can complicate your carbon net zero plans connor do you want to have first pass at this
1: yeah sure sure i think um Look, Anthony mentioned it before, we have three scopes of emissions, scope one, two and three. Scope one is about any combustion activities within your operation. So often when you're in an office, there might be some fossil fuel use for heating. So that's covered in scope one. And then also if you have a fleet fleet of vehicles, there's combustion um, happening there as well. The next one is scope two. So these are indirect emissions from purchased electricity. So again, a lot of the buildings we, we sit in, you know, this room that we're in here now and the equipment is all run off electricity. So that, that accounts for your scope two emissions. And the final and the biggest area is scope three. So scope three can account for a company's, uh, you know, their total carbon footprint could be anywhere from you know, 80 to 95% of their emissions are, are scope three. Um, and it, they often split them into upstream and downstream activities. So your upstream activities are any purchased goods and services, and um, that could be around air travel or um, any procurement spend you have. And then the downstream activities are what happens um, once you've sold your business's products or services. So for us at JLL, um, that's about the properties that we manage and the facilities we manage, so that accounts for our scope three emissions.
2: Thanks, Connor. So Anthony, how is this managed then when you have staff working both from home and the office?
0: So a lot of businesses don't realise, or certainly in the sessions that we ran, a lot of them didn't realise that if you have employees working from home on a somewhat, you know, it's not just an hour at home in the morning, they're actually spending whole days at home, those emissions form part of the business's scope three emissions. So for a business like JLL, our real estate isn't you know, our own lease premises isn't a large percentage of our footprint because we manage um, business or buildings on behalf of landlords, that takes up a, a big chunk of our emissions. But for say a law firm or an accounting firm where their premises is a pretty substantial um, portion of their broader footprint, um, if they're considering, you know, a business in the old world might have had 10,000 square meters prior to COVID, and in the new world, if they're going to retain that footprint but also allow people to work from home, their footprint's actually growing. A lot of businesses didn't realise that. So they think that they can, you know, that 10,000 square metre occupier can actually skinny down to eight or 7,000 square metres and there might be a net saving there that theoretically, but when you factor in people at at home in poorly built Australian homes that are very leaky, running the air conditioners, running the gas hot water, gas heating, all that kind of thing, it's very quickly starts to add up. I think that's gonna be a part that a lot of our clients are really gonna to struggle to understand and how to manage that. It's very easy to manage your own real estate and the footprint and, and how that sort of peaks and troughs, but with people working from home, it just adds a, an extra element, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think just to add to that, you know, the, it's going to change. You know, we're, we're still in this post-COVID recovery time when, when people are considering how much of a space to take and, and what the return to work looks like. but. When we're looking at, at carbon accounting, which is the, you know, the other fancy word for this, it's, it is a ledger. So there are, there are, there's carbon going in, there's carbon going out, depending on what decisions you're making. So on the opposite to that is if people are travelling in to work less and they're staying in their local area, there's also less transport mm. emissions. So you have to that, that gets into consideration as well.
2: Where do you even start with calculating that?
1: There needs to be a lot of estimation that comes in originally um, when you're calculating a, a company's carbon emissions footprint. Um, and look, if you if you think you know a company like JLL, we've got almost a hundred thousand people globally in in over a hundred countries. It would take a long time to, to accurately measure yeah. all of the carbon for that business. So we use a lot of a lot of benchmarks, and you know, and en- we end up using a lot of spend so we can calculate our emissions initially based on how much revenue we're, we're generating for certain clients, and use that as a proxy.
2: Right. Okay.
1: And mm. similar to to the one about hybrid working um there you just you send out a survey to your to your staff and you know hopefully you get a high response rate but then you use average data so the average distance that they'd be travelling to and from work to calculate the, yeah. um, the emissions I travel yeah
0: that that's one of the biggest problems at the moment as well we've heard a lot of our clients saying they're struggling to get good data particularly from a real estate perspective um either because the base building systems don't allow for that data to be churned out or there's a challenge getting it from The landlord for whatever reason that may be so there's a lot of estimating occurring but traditionally um, the onus has been on the tenants to provide information to the landlord so the landlord can maintain ratings and all that kind of thing so one of the, the things that we see needing to happen over the next couple of years to get better at all this and increase the efficiency in the sector is a lot better information flow between landlord and tenants And the right tech in the building to be able to track and record that information so it can be shared.
2: It really is a symbiotic relationship, isn't it? And it goes both ways. So landlords' output can affect the tenant's path to net zero and vice versa. Yeah,
0: and you need truckloads of data. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 So Connor was talking about the scope. So the landlord's scope one and two missions in the base building are the tenant's scope three. And then the tenant scope one and two emissions in their tenancy is the base building scope three. So there's an absolute alignment. So you pick up each other's emissions, basically. An interesting one is,
1: is in the industrial sector. So for industrial logistics, the landlord has very little responsibility over the emissions for that whole asset class. But the, the, the occupier, you know, the client or the tenant, um, they do. They, 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 they're responsible for 90, 95, almost 100% of the emissions there. So there needs to be a lot more collaboration between those two. And I think what, what we're seeing in that industrial logistics sector is the occupiers or the tenants are going to the landlords and saying, look, how can we optimise this building? How can we use the roof space to put on solar? How can it be more energy efficient? And then the investors and the landlords are coming to them and saying, look, we, to your point earlier, we want your data. So we will give you that data, but we'll also provide an incentive to you to help make that
2: building more energy efficient. Mm. So why in industrial and logistics is the landlord responsible for less than the commercial office sector?
0: So...
1: What 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 we yeah so if if I take an office for example the tenants are responsible for about forty to sixty five percent of energy consumption for that building but in industrial it's ninety five to one hundred percent so it still comes onto the landlords it's their scope three emissions but they have very little control so if you know a Woolies or a Coles someone in that in the industrial logistics sector (coughs) is, is has a lot of space they have the responsibility the operational control for how that facility is managed but the landlord still owns the asset. So for them to reduce their scope three, they need to have a stronger partnership with those mm. tenants.
2: Right. So it's just the nature of the asset class. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the next question. What is the process to get to net zero? And how do my company's commitments impact the leases that we sign? So the process, I guess, truckloads of data, as Anthony would say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd say um, at Initially, you have to measure. So, you know, you, you can't manage what you don't measure.
0: I like that. And <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you coin that phrase? No. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not me. Definitely me. <laughs> but look,
1: the, the first point is to calculate. You, you, you can't reduce what you don't know. So you have to calculate what your emissions are. And then once you have that, the next, the biggest, well, the second step is to do energy efficiency programs. Um, you don't want to be spending a lot in terms of refurbishing the asset if it is an inefficient one so usually the, the easiest low cost no cost measures are stuff that you know most buildings have done but some haven't which is about changing your lighting putting in more energy efficient lighting more sensors in there to, to make sure things are switching off and they don't need to be used uh, so that's definitely step one step two is then to to spend a bit more money to do the upgrades for that asset so you'll be looking at you know mid-size or deep retrofits for that building you could be switching over the mechanical and electrical plant within the building or within the the occupancy if it's just a tenant space and and also looking at insulation Um, after that you want to then look at how you're sourcing the electricity so um, that can be from renewables ideally on site so again going back to industrials or or the retail sector um, they have larger roof spaces so there's more opportunities to put solar on top of those roofs um, and then finally, you'd be looking at purchasing any remaining electricity from the grid, but from a renewable source on the grid.
2: Okay, great. Anthony, anything to add to that?
0: I was just going to say for a, um, for a corporate, it might be a little bit different. So a corporate occupier, um, so the, I guess the exploration phase and setting out the plan is, is a big milestone for a corporate. So they need to understand what activities they're going to undertake over the next 5, 10, 15 years, depending on where their commitment is to, to slowly phase out, you know, moving their, if they've got a fleet of vehicles, moving those to fully electric. Um, in the case of JLL, we've got to look at, you know, the buildings we manage and how that impacts us.
2: And you need to register that you're, I guess, officially on the path to carbon zero status. Is that right? How do you do that?
1: Yeah, so what we saw in the Lord we've just gone through COP27, um, but so a year ago we had COP26, and what we saw in the lead up to that was that uh, a huge number of companies signed up to the Science-Based Targets Initiative. Um, and, and what that initiative does is sort of sets, sets in stone how you're gonna decarbonize, uses sophisticated sort of data models to, to measure the carbon for your industry, and then maps it against your organization. Um, So through that process, and and there's a few others that are are emerging, that's when you can sort of lock in how you're going to achieve net zero and then you have to report against that commitment and that roadmap you have each year.
2: Okay, that's the process to get to net zero. The next part of that question was how are leases changing to factor in companies' sustainability targets? Anthony, that's one for you.
0: So so um, certainly our expectation is that Um, much like a company's financials are audited annually. There will come a point in time where a business's net zero target, what it's doing with its emissions will be audited. Um, So it's very important that if you are setting a target that the lease mirrors what that target is and that's really around a decarbonisation plan. So we've had green leases. Historically, green leases have been around for a while and a lot of that deals with... um, uh, you know, performance levels in the base building and initiatives to make buildings more efficient. And now we've really got to start looking at where are the emissions coming from? So where are you sourcing your electricity and have milestones in leases that mirror a tennis net zero plan? So it'd be very hard for a small occupier to knock on the door of landlord one day and say, hi, I'm a little two, 300 square metre occupier. Can you decarbonise your building? Because I've got a net zero target. So it's, more, it's probably more around the the bigger occupiers doing the heavy lifting. So as an example, if a um, occupier is pre-committing a building for 10 years from 2025 and they've got a net zero target, then they'll need provisions in their lease, um, decarbonisation provisions aligned with their net zero target. So by which date does the building need to be sourcing renewable energy? Um, When does it need to stop using gas? How does it deal with recycling? uh, what do we call them? Oh, I was going to call them escapee emissions, but it's fugitive emissions. From <laughs> 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 oh, Air conditioning, yes. yeah. <laughs> not escapee, it's similar. Um, yes, yeah, so all that sort of stuff, just having it back to back with the lease is really important because you could, you could fast forward 10 years from now and a tenant have a commitment and then the, the magnifying glass be put on the real estate and they're actually not performing the way they're meant to be performing. Mm-hmm.
2: Thanks, Anthony. Okay, moving on to question four. What are the regulations in this space and what are the opportunities on the horizon? A healthy dose of regulation can certainly put companies on the right path. Uh, I guess it creates a bit of a stick approach uh, and then you get some great opportunities for change as well. So, Connor, maybe you can talk to the regulations which uh, entail neighbours and Green Star building certifications, I guess.
1: Yeah, so they they are very progressive. Neighbours and Green Star. I think there's a sort of a triumvirate of the the Neighbours, um, the government department that that runs Neighbours, the Green Building Council of Australia, and the Property Council of Australia. So the three of them together, when it comes to the built environment, they're really setting the the tone of of how we're going to decarbonise and. A few years ago, they set out a roadmap called the Climate Positive Roadmap, and it showed the industry really how to get from where we are now for both new builds and existing assets. Um, so what the pathway is to get from, from where we are now to get to, to a net zero, net zero world. Um, there's a long way to go, but uh, there, there have been, I guess you would say progressive in, in, in how they're sort of changing those standards and updating them. Um, so it will become more difficult to maintain that same high level of, you know, five-star or six-star, green-star or neighbours-rated asset. And to do that, what you need to do is then you have to procure renewable energy and also electrify those assets to maintain those going forward.
0: Mm. And you, you spoke about the stick, but we need to see the carrot as well. Um, and one one good example is... Um, the way it currently works is if you're an um, Australian domiciled, majority Australian owned fund and you build a new, inverted commas, green asset, uh, you'll get tax breaks. Whereas if you if you go and refurb an existing building, which arguably has a lot greater green credentials because you utilise the existing concrete, the existing structural, that kind of thing, the embodied carbon a lot lower, you can't access the same. Incentives, So all that sort of stuff needs to be better thought about. And I think um, JLL is a business where we're part of the, the body advocating for some of that change. Yeah, and I think yeah,
1: you know, the big the banking sector, the finance sector are the ones going to be driving that. So there's going to be a lot more green bonds and sustainable financing happening. And again, going back to those certifications like Green Star and Neighbours, they're the links to achieving them.
2: Yeah, indeed. Okay, so let's move on to our final question. What sustainability hacks can you share? Now, I'm not sure anyone on your roadshow actually asked you this question, but I put it in here a bit selfishly because, frankly, I love a good hack and sometimes ideas are too good not to be shared.
1: Yeah, I'd say we're in a... um, The environment at the moment, and and not just in Australia, but internationally, is rising energy costs. So a lot of people don't want to spend the money initially to understand how they can save energy or, or water or even reduce their waste, but... I would highly recommend investing in a small amount. It can only be a couple of thousand dollars in getting an audit done. So once you've done had an audit, you can see where the energy savings are, water savings and, and even reducing your waste, and that's going to save you money in the end. So the cost of an audit hasn't gone up, but the energy prices and, and waste collection prices definitely have. So highly recommend.
2: I presume you've conducted audits for clients. I bet they're a real eye-opener in terms of how much waste you realise is going on.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, a simple one is around is around waste. So, I'll give a good example here. Where pre COVID, uh, you know, the waste collect, you know, the the waste contractors would be picking up however many bins they picked up, and then uh, office numbers have gone down, so there hasn't been as much waste. So they're still collecting as many bins. A lot of them are empty, and people are still paying the same prices. So all you need to do is count the number of bins you actually need, go back to your supplier, reduce the numbers, and save money.
2: Wait, that's outrageous. So you've got Empty bins that you're paying for rubbish collection for and trucks are still doing the circuits for emptying these bins.
0: Yeah. The truck still turns up and finds the bin empty. Yeah. You're
1: paying for air collection.
0: <laughs> yeah. <Absolutely. laughs> I just want to make a point around um, power purchase agreements. So a lot of landlords recently have entered into uh, renewable power purchase agreements. So that is basically, you know, there's only so much in the office sector, there's only so much rooftop and you can't really generate too much solar off a rooftop. Um, So they're basically going to a renewable energy provider, whether it's a wind farm a solar farm, whatever, and committing to a certain amount of power being purchased over a certain amount of time. So if tenants are able to access and piggyback the landlord's power purchase agreement, it can be challenging to do it when you don't already have a lease in place that says that because the landlord will have already allocated that power somewhere. But when you're entering into a new lease, that's a really good way. It ticks a box as far as your net zero plan goes. If you have one, um, gives you access, obviously, to um, the, the landlord's um, economies of scale with respect to pricing as well.
1: Yeah, and uh, look, it helps a lot. So there's other, there's other ways of doing it as well. There's the embedded network. So in different parts, especially in the retail sector, over in, w, over in WA, there are a lot of embedded networks, and that's where the landlord's already making their own network of energy, mm. which they off-sell to the tenants. So again, if they're purchasing renewables there, that's that's an easy win. But otherwise, it's, it's around Scope 3. So more and more landlords are going to be looking to, well, they're already purchasing these PPAs, as you mentioned, and um, yeah, and then offering those to, to their tenants so they can reduce their
2: Scope 3 emissions. Fantastic. All right, we've come to the end of our five questions. Is there anything else you'd like to enlighten our listeners with before we wrap up? I
1: think one of the other hacks I had on my list was just around um, the circular economy. Uh, so that can be a bit of a buzzword, but when we're looking at, you know whether it's a whole building uh, or, or a tenancy, how we can reduce the amount of waste at the end of the life of that of that fit out or that building going to the landfill. And uh, so it's it's about considering that early on the design principle and recycling and refurbishing as much of that material as possible. Um, if anyone's doing a, a a defit at the moment, like we're we're moving our offices in Sydney soon, there's some great companies out there. Like the Green Furniture Hub, FTD Circular, and Good Three Hundred and Sixty, and these are not-for-profit entities that, that that take on that those um, you know, existing furniture and find new homes in you know, charities and, and and other areas. So, just a bit of a plug there uh, for those types of services
0: and fit out as well. I think we need to get better at utilising and refurbing existing fit outs, whether it's just you know reconfiguring them or whatever it is I think historically we've been very very good at just taking um, premises back to quote unquote base building standard and going again so um, there's an incredible amount of embodied carbon in the fit outs that we occupy so we need to get better at refurbing them and you know upcycling them so to speak at the end of their useful life as opposed to just turfing them out and Burying them in a hole somewhere. <laughs> I think that
1: goes to removing the requirement in the lease as well, the, the make good requirement in, in the lease. Yeah.
2: Um, Definitely. Because it sounds like it's sort of a cultural shift, if anything, that needs to happen as well as what's happening on paper and agreements and that sort of thing. So.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I think a key takeaway is that we need to move as far away from this kind of transactional relationship between landlord and tenant as we can and more to that symbiotic, you know, partnership where we're doing this together, we're on the same journey together type relationship, which is hard for me to say as a tenant rep. <laughs> very hard.
2: Anthony Clark and Connor McCauley, it's been fun. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. This has been JL's Perspectives podcast and I'm Rebecca Kent. Thanks for listening.